Open your Bibles with me to Zechariah chapter 2. Zechariah chapter 2. Boy, we're flying through Zechariah now, aren't we? I, um, I'm so enjoying looking at this. You know, I've mentioned to you that commentators say that Zechariah is one of the most difficult Bible, uh, books in the Bible to understand, and that is probably true. Um, one of the things that has helped me, though, in studying the book of Zechariah are these principles of Bible study that we, that we follow where we compare Scripture with Scripture and we allow the Bible to explain itself. And we're going to see a lot of that today. So let's look at this vision in Zechariah chapter 2. We're going to start reading in verse 1. I lifted up mine eyes again and looked, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then said I, Whither goest thou? And he said unto me, To measure Jerusalem, to see what is the breadth thereof, and what is the length thereof. And behold, the angel that talked with me went forth, and another angel went out to meet him. And he said unto him, or and said unto him, Run, speak to this young man, saying, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as towns without walls for the multitude of men and cattle therein. For I, saith the Lord, will be unto her a wall of fire round about, and will be the glory in the midst of her. Ho, ho, come forth and flee from the land of the north, saith the Lord. For I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens, saith the Lord. Deliver thyself, O Zion, that dwellest with the daughter of Babylon. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, after the glory hath he sent me unto the nations which spoiled you. For he that toucheth you toucheth the apple of his eye. For behold, I will shake mine hand upon them, and they shall be a spoil to their servants. And ye shall know that the Lord of hosts hath sent me. Lord, help us to understand this passage of Scripture. There's so much in it. Lord, help us to see it. And Father, I pray that it's a help. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so now, make sure that you have a Bible in front of you. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's one in the chair underneath you, or in front of you, I should say. And if you'll get that, it'll help you a lot. This is such an amazing passage. There's so much information just in this one particular vision that I think that we're going to learn a lot of things today. So let's dive in. The first thing that I want you to see is that there is an announcement. There's an announcement. And the announcement is that, in verse 1, I lifted up mine eyes again, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. And so what he's doing is he is setting, the, the in verse 2, the measure of Jerusalem, the breadth and the length. And what we learned a few Wednesday nights ago is that there are three Jerusalems in the Bible. There is the historic physical Jerusalem that you could go and see today. That, that is referenced in Zechariah chapter 1 and will be referenced again. There is the millennial Jerusalem, which is Jerusalem in the millennium, in the kingdom. That's the, the Jerusalem that's being spoken of here. And the way that we know that it's different is God sent uh, Ezra and Nehemiah back to build the walls of Jerusalem. This is a city without walls. So this is a different Jerusalem than is being spoken of. This is a future Jerusalem, and we'll get that definition. You'll see that in a minute when we get to the, where it says, after the glory, and we'll understand the timing of it there. So the third Jerusalem is the new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven, uh, from God out of heaven. And that new Jerusalem, it's about 1,500 miles wide and 1,500 miles high. Isn't that interesting? And so there are three different Jerusalems. There's the historic, physical Jerusalem. There is the future physical Jerusalem that will be much larger and will not have walls, and we're going to explain that in a minute. And then there is the future new Jerusalem after the new heavens and the new earth are created that comes down from God out of heaven, those three Jerusalems. This, and if you want to get that information, it's a Wednesday night Bible study. Pastor Nathan has those out on the table. You can get that where we trace that through the Scriptures. All right? So the announcement is that it's going to be as towns without walls. Look in verse 4. And said unto him, this young man, run, to this angel, run, speak to this young man who is Zechariah. The young man is Zechariah. Saying, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as towns without walls for the multitude of the men and cattle therein. Keep your place here and go to Proverbs chapter 25.
Normally, when the Bible refers to a city that doesn't have walls, that's a bad thing. All right? So, verse 28, He that hath no rule over his own spirit is a city that is broken down and without walls. Now, let me ask you a question. How many of you think that that is a good thing? No. Do you know what the answer is? Build that wall. No, that's a different... (laughs) It's a city that is broken down without walls. He that hath no rule over his own spirit... The reason, so today, how many of you served in the military? Any of you that are here, you served in the military. Walls don't really matter a whole lot anymore, right? I mean, you you bring a tank in and the wall's not there anymore. You know, you send a mortar over, you send a missile over, you drop a bomb on it. Walls, for for military purposes, walls don't serve a a lot of purpose. Now, since it's in the air, let me just say it. Why does President Trump want a wall on the southern border? To stop people from walking in. How many of you recognize walls help people stop walking? Here, let's demonstrate. (laughs) That won't work. Okay. Um, It's the end of the political commentary for the day. But the reason that these, these walls were important in those days is the way that warfare was done a city could be spoiled, and that means that you could take the valuable goods out of it because it couldn't be protected without those walls. So here, not having a wall around the city was a really bad thing, and that's why Nehemiah went back to build the walls because the walls weren't there around the city. So this passage could be its own sermon. It's not going to be, but I do want to comment on it. He that hath no rule over his own spirit is like a city that is broken down without walls. Um, you know, there is such a thing as clinical depression, and that requires clinical help. Amen? That's, so that's not what I'm talking about right here. Uh, the idea of a man that has no rule over his own spirit, that means you can't control yourself. You're, you're either, you, you can't, you can't uh, control your anger. You can't control your resentment. You can't control your bitterness. You can't control your, you either get too down or you get too high. Well, that kind of person can't be successful, right? You know, if you've got a guy at work that's constantly losing his temper and punching people, and they're not going to work there anymore, right? You have somebody, somebody in sales. Well, if you can't control your spirit, you're not going to sell because people are going to make you mad. Or, you know, you've got to stay up. You've got to stay positive in order to be able to sell things. If you can't do that, then you're not going to make a living doing that. Does that does, are you following me on this? So the Bible makes it clear that you need to have rule over your own spirit. Uh, young people, you may have heard me mention this. My mother, my brother and I both had bad tempers. We're always fighting each other and all that as we were growing up. So my mother would take verses like this and write them on three-by-five cards and put them on the mirror where we were getting ready. She'd post that scripture for us. We were going to see that verse whether we wanted to or not. She wanted us to know that she was not going to have sons that couldn't control their own spirit. Isn't that good? And, you know, she'd hit us with a, with a soup handle to make us love the scripture. No, I'm kidding. She wouldn't, she wouldn't do that. She probably should have, but she didn't. Um, so most, this is just an example that most places in scripture where a city doesn't have walls, it's a bad thing. But let's go back to Zechariah to try to see why this is different. All right, middle of verse 4, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as towns without walls for the multitude of men and cattle therein. So there's going to be a lot of people in it. Animals are going to be there. And guys, here's you ready for some really good news. There's, we're going to have stakes in the millennium. No reason for cattle. If there's not milk, cheese, and steaks, and whatever else we get from it, Slim Jims, whatever, okay? So I'm not sure that that's actually meat, but I'm trying not to get really distracted right now with that. All right, so verse 5, For I, saith the Lord, will be unto her a wall of fire round about. Do you know why there's no need for a wall? Because God is the wall. God is the protection. I I love this. You know, sometimes people are afraid to allow their children to go to the mission field or to become missionaries or or go into uh, full-time Christian service because they're afraid they won't be provided for. 
So like my grandparents basically disowned my father when he said he was going to become a pastor. They didn't go to his high school graduation. They, they just, I only saw them two or three times in my life. They basically disowned the family because dad became a preacher because they believed all preachers were mooches. Now, there's two problems with that. Number one, maybe they met some preachers that were mooches, right? And that's a horrible thing. And number two, they didn't understand the role of the pastor and how important that is in God's plan for somebody to be willing to give their life to that. And then it's the church's responsibility to provide for that person. So there's that kind of thing. But there are people that don't want their children to serve the Lord because they're afraid that they'll get hurt. Well, look, you can get hurt driving to the factory or driving to the school, right? You can get hurt doing anything. But I promise you this, the safest place you can be in the world is in exactly in God's plan for your life because a Christian is invincible until God is done with them. It's such a wonderful thing to remember that He is our protection. Um, my favorite illustration of this, go with me to, uh, let's see, it's Second Kings... I believe, yeah, chapter 6. 2 Kings chapter 6. So Elisha, the king, has said, there's a, there's a spy in my camp. Somebody knows all of my plans. And someone said, well, no. There's this prophet of God named Elisha, and everything that happens in your chamber, Elisha tells it. He gets it from God, and he tells it. So he sends his army to surround the city or the little, the little village where Elisha was. This huge army is coming. Can you imagine? You're just one guy, and you've got a helper, a servant that's there with you, and this whole army has come against you. And look at what Elisha says. Verse, let's look at verse 13, Second uh, Kings chapter 6, verse 13. And he said, Go and spy where he is, th- that I may send and fetch him. And it was told him, saying, Behold, he is in Dothan. Therefore sent he thither horses and chariots and a great host. And they came by night and compassed the city about. So they surrounded the city. And when the servant of the man of God was risen early and had gone forth, behold, an host compassed the city, both with horses and chariots. And his servant said unto him, Alas, my master, how shall we do? What would you say? Verse 16, and he answered, Fear not, for they that be with us are more than they that be with them. And I can just picture this servant. He's doing the math. (laughs) And he's looking around. He's thinking, What are you talking about? We're surrounded. All right? I love this. And look at the verse, verse 17. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. Is that awesome? Man, that's better than Lord of the Rings. You know, look to the east. They're coming. This is, this is so amazing because we need to recognize that there is spiritual warfare that goes on. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness in high places. There, there is a spiritual warfare that's going on. Remember that Daniel prayed and God had sent Gabriel to give him his message. But on the way, this, I think he was called the Prince of Persia, this angel had, had fought with him and he's fighting with this other angel before he could get the message to Daniel. There is this spiritual warfare that's going on around us. Isn't that right? So the Bible says that's what's going on. But what we need to understand is that it is the Lord that is fighting for us. It is the Lord that's fighting for us. We need to recognize that God has provided protection for the people of God. Do you believe that? See, I don't think that we recognize this or think about it enough. Now, how many of you recognize that the world is against God's church? Right? Well, that's okay. We have God. That's better. Right? Go back to Zechariah chapter 2. I want to show you something, I want to show you something that's really cool. 
not only is he surrounding them, he is a wall of fire round about. But let me just stop for a second. How cool would it have been to be able to see that? For God to open your eyes. I wonder what that really looked like. It's described as chariots of fire, and I'm sure that's what it was. But it, it had to be a spectacular sight. And those, those soldiers sent from the king, they had no idea. That's awesome. All right? So back in verse 5, Zechariah 2, 5. For I, saith the Lord, will be unto her a wall of fire round about, and will be the glory in the midst of her. So this is, the you can see that God's omnipresence. He can be more than one place at a time. So he is, he is surrounding with fire, but he's also the glory in the middle of it. So this is for Israel. Let's look at how this is for the church. All right, go to Revelation chapter 2. Now, those of you that attend Grace Baptist, you know that we go to Revelation 2 a lot because this is the message that Jesus Christ gave to the churches. And that's probably a good thing to do, right? Listen to what Jesus said. So look at Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. And so it says, Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus. Now, that word angel. Now, if you have a footnote in your Bible, it may say pastor. How many of you have a footnote that says pastor right there? When it says it says angel, it means pastor. What I always say on that is I know a lot of pastors and they're not angels. Right? Now, how many of you know that the word pastor was available to God when he wrote this? How many of you know that? Because Revelation is the last book written in the Bible and the word pastor is used before that. So if God wanted to say this letter is to the pastor, then it would be to the pastor. But it says that it is to the angel of that church. So do you know what I believe? I believe that God has an angel assigned to Grace Baptist Church. We're protected. This church, we have God's protection. And I could give you account after account after account of Bible-believing churches that God has protected throughout the centuries around the world. Now, there have been times when they've been killed. And do you know what happened? They were ushered into the presence of their Savior. Isn't that wonderful? But in this world, God has provided protection. But not only has God provided protection through angels, but God has also provided His own presence. What did He say? I will be the glory in the midst of them. Is that what He said? But look at this. Revelation 2, 1. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write... These things saith he, and so Jesus is describing himself, he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. All right? Now, what does that mean? All right, go one verse back, chapter 1 and verse 20. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. So what it's saying here, chapter 2, verse 1, unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. What he's saying is this. God is holding the churches in his hand, but he's also in the middle of the church. What did Jesus say? Now, the passage is dealing with church discipline, but it says, Where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I where? In the midst of them. In the midst of them. Now, how many of you believe Jesus is here right now? He's here right now. It'd be a good, good thing to say hello to Him, wouldn't it? I wonder how many of us have actually prayed to Him or are praying to Him during this message. You know, that's what you're supposed to be doing. The purpose of this is for me to instruct you, but for us to be worshiping God together, worshiping our Savior, exalting our Savior together because He's here. He is in the midst of us right now. So what God is saying in that millennial Jerusalem, there won't need to be a wall because He's a fire round, a wall of fire round about them, but He's also the glory in the midst of them. And why is that important? Because there's not going to need to be a sun because He provides the light. Do you understand how, light, how bright that is? So we're going to get to go, Lord willing, looks like we'll be able to go to Colorado. We didn't think we were going to get a vacation this year. But uh, my sister has never been to Colorado since we were little. 
and her and her family are going out, and they're going to take us out to Colorado for four days. And we were talking about, Laura and I were talking about telling them how to pack and things because where we go is at 9,000 feet. It's fantastic. I'm just telling you, if you've not been, I'm better than you. Okay? So you're going to love it. You've got to go to Colorado sometime. So we're up at 9,000 feet, and it's cooler. And there's, there's like 30% humidity. It's just fantastic. There's no bugs. It's, it's just paradise on earth. Okay? So we love going there. But what's interesting is it's easier to get a sunburn. Why do you think that is? Young people think you can figure this out? Why is it easier to get a sunburn at 9,000 feet than at sea level? Closer to the sun! You guys are awesome! (laughs) Parents, there's hope! Can you imagine that that, that the brightness of Jesus is actually brighter, the Bible says, than the noonday sun? That's an amazing thing, isn't it? That's the Jesus that's here with us right now. That's our Savior. That's who He is. So go back to Zechariah. So chapter 2, verse 5. For I, saith the Lord, will be unto her a wall of fire round about, and will be the glory in the midst of her. I will be the glory in the midst of her. Keep your place here. Go to Ezekiel chapter 11. Why is he making that promise that he'll be the glory in the midst of her? Ezekiel chapter 11. Look at verse 22. Then did the cherubims lift up their wings and the wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them above. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood upon the mountain, which is on the east side of the city. What has just happened is God's glory left the temple. God's glory left the temple. So in the book of Zechariah, all right, so back to Zechariah, chapter 2, verse 5, and will be the end of the verse, and will be the glory in the midst of her. That's because right here, when Zechariah was written, he's not. The glory of God had left the temple. We as believers, our whole purpose for being is to worship Jesus Christ and bring glory to God. Is that right? Do you all agree with that? And this is something we really need to focus on. We need to think about it because part of worship is that it's an active thing. It's, It's a willful thing. And I know, man, it's hard. It's hard for me to sit and listen to preaching. I think that's why God made me a preacher. Okay, it's hard for me to sit and listen to somebody talk for a long time. And so I try to be interesting and tell stupid jokes and keep your attention and all of that stuff. But worship, when you're here in this building right now, your job is to be actively thinking about God, His glory, His word, and its impact on your life. Are you all with me on that? That's your job. You are to be thinking about Him. And that's a mental discipline. Right? Because we might be thinking about, you know, you're going to go fishing later on. You're going to, the food that you're going to have. Hopefully, did you get me my steak? No. She didn't get me my steak. So I'm having beans later on today. We all, we, we, th- we, we begin thinking about the things that we're going to be doing. When what we're supposed to be doing right now is focusing on the Word of God, on the Word that's being preached, and on our Savior. And as we're thinking about the glory of God being in the midst of that city, that ought to produce an excitement in us. So I just finished a a golf outing that I go to every year. It's pastors and other men from churches, and we get together over in Indiana and play golf for a couple of days. And there's preaching, and it's, it's really a cool thing. Man, I was so excited about that trip. I couldn't sleep. I'm thinking about it all the time. 
Well, shouldn't the concept of God's glory being in the midst of the city and us being there to see it, shouldn't that be something that should stir some emotion in us? Seriously. But it really doesn't. Do you know why it doesn't? It's not because we're wicked or evil, although there might be some of that in us. I'm sure that my sin keeps me from focusing on that. It's because I don't think about it. It's because I don't consciously dwell and meditate on that whole concept of actually being in God's presence, in the presence of His glory, and experiencing all the benefit that comes from that. Why? Because I'm distracted by this life and this flesh and all of these things. So I'm not you know, saying you're a bad person because you're not doing that. No, I'm saying let's remember to do this even now as we are studying this passage thinking and contemplating on the glory of God being in the midst of the new of this millennial Jerusalem. Um, keep your place in, in Zechariah. Go to Psalm 3. In verse 3. Well, let's just start reading in verse 1. It's really good. Psalm 3, verse 1. Lord, how are they increased that trouble me? Many are they that rise up against me. Many there be which say of my soul, there is no help for him in God. Selah. Remember Selah. What are we supposed to look for when we see Selah? The millennial rest. This is dealing with Jesus Christ ruling in the kingdom. Look at what it says in verse 3. But thou, O Lord, art a shield for me, my glory, and the lifter up of my head. The lifter up of mine head. That's who he is. He, he's my glory. Is Jesus Christ your glory? Is he your glory? I think that maybe it would be a really good exercise for us to just this week make it a discipline to focus on Jesus being your glory. Will you do that with me? This week, let's just think and meditate on Jesus Christ, finding glory in Him. Remember what the Apostle Paul said, I'm not going to glory in anything, but in the cross of Christ. That's His glory. It's Jesus and who He is and what He's doing. That helps us with our day-to-day -day existence and all the things that go on in our day-to-day -day lives. Jesus Christ needs to be above all of that so our troubles don't become our idols. The glory. The glory had departed the temple. When does the glory go back to the temple? Look at Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. Look at verse 6. But I say unto you that in this place is one greater than the temple. See, when did the glory go back to the temple? When Jesus Christ stepped foot in the temple. You wonder why He cleansed it? Isn't that interesting? There's one greater than the temple, and that is Jesus Christ. When did the glory return to the temple? When Jesus Christ walked into it. But He hasn't revealed His glory yet. Let's go back to Zechariah, and I want you to see something. So now let's look at verse 6. So what we've seen is there's an announcement that this Jerusalem is going to be built. It's not going to have walls. God's going to be a fire around, a wall of fire round about, and He's going to be in the middle of it. His presence will be the glory in the midst of her. Verse 6, Ho, ho, come forth and flee. Do you see that? Come forth. Now there's an appeal. There's an appeal. Come forth and flee from the land of the north, saith the Lord. For I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heaven, saith the Lord. So notice what God is saying. He's telling them to do something. Come forth. Come forth. Then look at what it says. For I have spread you abroad. So who caused the scattering of Israel? Who caused that? God did. God did. God did it. Why? Because they had not obeyed His commands. But He wasn't done with them. So now He's telling them to come back. Remember where they're supposed to come back from. Look at what it says in verse 7. Deliver thyself, O Zion, that dwellest with the daughter of Babylon. 
Remember, a million people had been taken away, and I don't remember the number, 40,000, I think, is what went back. So that means most of them stayed. So what he's saying is, come back. Come back to the land. But look at what he says in verse uh, 7. Deliver thyself, O Zion, that dwellest with the daughter of Babylon. God had paved the way for them. God had moved in the king's heart. He had moved in Cyrus's heart. He had moved with Darius. He had, a, he had changed the entire political system so that they could go back. He'd made it possible for them to do that. But they had to do it themselves. They had to get up and make the trip back to Jerusalem. Do you see that? You see this? Do you know what God did for us? In, in Galatians chapter 4, it says, In the fullness of time... God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law. That at the perfect time, God ordered the world. And there are several things that He had arranged so that it would have been the perfect time. You know, it's been said, if Jesus had been born a hundred years before or a hundred years later, you never would have heard about Him. Because there, was a, there were things in place that God had established. There was the Pax Romana, so the, that was the Roman peace. So it was possible to travel the entire region on roads built by the Romans in relative safety because the Romans would kill the bandits. So they were able to travel with the gospel because of the Roman, the Pax Romana and that Roman road system. Not only that, but God had provided this Jewish system of monotheism, that there's one God. The Romans had, if you go to Rome today, you can go to the Pantheon. The pan, pan, that's all, Theon, gods. It was a temple made to all the gods. They had all kinds of gods, but because of Judaism and the influence of Judaism at that time, that whole region understood monotheism, the concept of there being one true God. But not only that, because of the destruction of the temple earlier and the establishment of the synagogue system, in every community, there was a place where people gathered where someone could go and preach the gospel. If it wasn't for that synagogue system, then the Apostle Paul, it says in Acts chapter 17, as his manner was, he went in daily and reasoned with them out of the scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have died and been buried and risen from the dead. He's explaining that to them, laying the scriptures side by side, preaching where? In the synagogue going to the places where the people were. And then he would go into the marketplaces. He would go where people gathered. It, God had made it possible for the gospel to be spread. But you know what people still had to do? They had to believe. You see, this is where Calvinism gets it right. So God prepares the way for everyone to get saved. But they have to take the step of belief. Now, you couldn't take that step of belief unless Jesus Christ had made the offer to you. You know, it's that whole gift thing. If I'm going to make the pen the gift, I'm holding that out. It's your responsibility to take it. I can't make you take it. Then it wouldn't be a gift. It would be an imposition. So it's really important that we understand that God is telling Israel, look, I've made the way for you. You need to come back. But remember, this passage is dealing not only with getting the people back to Jerusalem. That's what Zechariah was doing. But he's also talking about this millennial Temple. Let's see if the Bible says anything about that. Go with me to Isaiah chapter 11. This is such an interesting thing. Isaiah 11, verse 11. Let's see if there's anything in this context that will give us an understanding of when it's going to happen. And it shall come to pass in, what's it say? That day. So when you see that in that day, that's the day that Jesus Christ returns to the earth to establish His kingdom. It's really simple. So in the kingdom, all right, in that day, and, in that, and it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set His hand, what's that next word? Again. And then what are those next three words? the second time to recover the remnant of his people which shall be left from Assyria and from Egypt and from Pathros and from Cush and from Elam and from Shinar and from Hamath and from the islands of the sea. 
And he shall set up an ensign for the nations. That's a banner, a sign for the nations. And shall assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah. Look at this, from the four corners of the earth. Remember the four carpenters in chapter 1 of Zechariah when you see that number 4? That's the whole world from all over the world. Do you know that Jews are all over the world right now? And what God's going to do is He's going to gather... He gathered them back the first time after the Babylonian captivity. He gathered them back. He is going to gather them back again the second time during the kingdom. And He's going to pull Jews from all over the world back to Israel. All right? So now, go back to Zechariah chapter 2. When is this going to happen? So if you look at Zechariah, I want you to see this from verse 6. Ho, ho, come forth and flee from the land of the north, saith the Lord. For I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heaven. See, so he scattered them, the four winds all over the earth. That number four, again, saith the Lord, Deliver thyself, O Zion, that dwellest with the daughter of Babylon. Can I just stop there? I hope you've marked that, deliver thyself. You young people, I, I just had a great time with the epic class in the last Sunday school hour. And what I talked about with them, one of the things that we talked about, was that at some point, what we believe has to become yours. It's no longer your parents' faith. Well, it's still your parents' faith, but you're not trusting in your parents' faith. You're trusting in the faith, and it becomes your faith. So we can do all of this teaching, but at some point, you have to claim it for yourself and start studying and growing and learning it yourself. Isn't that right? This is the choice that you make, that you're going to... You say, I'm going to live a holy life. I'm going to believe what God says. I'm going to follow the Lord. I'm going to represent Christ well. God has laid the path work for you. He's done that work by giving you parents that have brought you here, by bringing this church to Sydney, Ohio, by giving us the Word of God, by providing a pastor and an assistant pastor and a youth director and Sunday school teachers and all of this influence that God has given you. God has made it possible for you to do right. Now it's your choice. Now you deliver yourself. I like it what Paul said to Timothy. Timothy, keep thyself pure. He didn't say pray that God will help you stay pure. He said, keep thyself pure. You're not an animal. Don't act like an animal. Keep yourself pure. You do this yourself. Amen? All right. So then, verse 8. When does this happen? When will this happen? For thus saith the Lord of hosts, after the glory... Is, is, there, a, is there a time word there? What's the time word? After the glory hath he sent me unto the nations which spoiled you, for he that toucheth you toucheth the apple of his eye. He that toucheth you toucheth the apple of his eye. All right? So when is this going to happen? After the glory. Go to Matthew chapter 24. I'm going to do this as quickly as possible. All right? Matthew chapter 24. Look at verse 29. And you might as well put a marker here because we're going to come back to this passage in a minute. So Matthew 24, verse 29. Immediately after, is there a time word there? What's the time word? After. Immediately after the tribulation of those days. So when you see the word those days, look for the tribulation. This helps us to see that. See the, the, those two words, those days, look for a reference to the tribulation period. Now, is there any reference to the tribulation period in this verse? This is not a hard question. Is there a reference to the tribulation in this verse? Yes. What is the word that lets you know that it's tribulation? Tri that's, that's amazing interpretation, isn't it? Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from the heaven, and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. And the Bible gives us more detail about that in Revelation chapter 6 through 9. Okay, he describes all of that. All right? And then is there, is there a time word in verse at the beginning of verse 30? And is there a time word? Then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power. And what does it say right there? Great glory. So this establishing of the city, this new, this millennial Jerusalem where there are no walls, but God is a wall of fire and His glory is in the midst of them, that happens after the glory. 
And this is where the glory comes, when Jesus Christ comes back to establish His kingdom, all right, with power and great glory. So let's see if that fits with what we read in Zechariah about God gathering His people back. Verse 31, And He shall send His angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together His elect. Do you see that? The elect. Now, Calvinists get this all screwed up. The elect is Jesus and Israel. That's the elect. The elect is Jesus and Israel. And God is going to gather His elect, the Jews. Does He need to gather up His Son? Does He need to gather up His Son? No, no, no. He's gathering the elect. That's the Jews. From the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Do you see how the one end of heaven to the other defines that four winds? You see that? When you see that, that's the whole world that He's talking about. All right? So He's going to do this. He's going to gather them Together, after the glory. Look at chapter 25, Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man, that's Jesus, shall come in, what's it say there? His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then shall He sit upon the throne of His glory. The throne of His glory. Where is that throne of His glory? In the midst of this millennial Jerusalem. All right? So when is this going to happen? It's going to happen after the tribulation period. That's when it's going to happen. When does the tribulation period happen? After the rapture of the church. Every saved person in the world. Jesus Christ is coming back. He's going to take us out of this world. The Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God. The dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. We're going to be in the clouds. So shall ever be with the Lord. That's that rapture. That's the first resurrection of uh, Revelation chapter 20. Blessed are they that have a part in the first resurrection. Because the second death's not going to have anything to do with them. That first, that's what we're looking for. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. After that comes the glory. After that, He comes and establishes His kingdom. That's when it's going to happen. Back to Zechariah chapter 2. So when is this going to happen? It's going to happen after the glory. And I want you to see this, and we'll finish up with this. Verse 8, Zechariah chapter 2 and verse 8. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, After the glory hath he sent me unto the nations which spoiled you. For he that toucheth you, toucheth the apple of his eye. And I'm just telling you, any nation that is harmful to the nation of Israel is in big trouble with God. In big trouble with God. So let's, let's trace this out. Where does this apple of his eye come from? Go with me to Deuteronomy chapter 32. I love the way that God designed our eye so that we understand this. Um, let's see. Ethan, come up here with me for a minute. You're not Ethan. Evan. No, Ethan. Yeah, I got it right, didn't I? The first time. Almost never happens. All right. See, that was involuntary. He didn't do that on... Did you see? Why did he do that? Because one of the... Thanks, you can sit down. One of the things... He passed that test. All right. He, he does have an autonomic nervous system. That's a good thing. But the, you can't control that. You, you try and stand there while somebody pokes you in the eye. So that God has, He's built in natural reflexes. He's given us our eyelids, our eyebrows. He's given us our eyelashes, all these things to protect our eyes. Your, your, your brow is there to protect your eyes. Now, some of you Neanderthals have extra protection. But that's all, God, that's a, it's a picture that we all have. We understand it. Deuteronomy chapter 32. Look at what it says in verse 9. For the Lord's portion is His people. Jacob is the lot of His inheritance. He found him in a desert land and in the waste howling wilderness. Isn't that picturesque? He led him about. He instructed him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. It's precious. It's precious. You know... Uh, there's, there's something really sweet about a newborn baby and, and the way that a mother holds that baby and the way the mother protects the baby. And you, you've all heard the stories about, you know, a mom and her baby getting caught out in the wilderness and 
that the mother protecting and shielding and the, the baby with her own body warmth. And they find the mother dead, but the baby's still alive because that baby was worth more to her than her own life. Men, when, you're, when your child is born, they put that little girl in your hands. Your, your first thought, guys, tell me if this is true. Your first thought is it's a lizard. <laughs> then your second thought is I'd kill anybody that tried to hurt this child. Isn't it amazing how that you, that... you didn't walk in prepared to think that. But that's that thing that... Why? Because she's the apple of your eye. We understand that terminology, and that's the way that God describes Israel. Look at the book of Lamentations, chapter 2. Jeremiah Lamentations. Look at verse 18. Lamentations chapter 2, verse 18. Their heart cried unto the Lord, O wall of the daughter of Zion, let tears run down like a river day and night. Give thyself no rest. Let not the apple of thine eye cease. Let not the apple of thine eye cease. The word that Israel is going to be gone forever. Don't let, praying to God, don't let the apple of thine eye cease. Go to Psalm 17. Psalm 17, look at verse 8. Keep me as the apple of the eye. Hide me under the shadow of thy wings. This is Israel is precious to God. Go to Proverbs chapter 7. So, what do we do with this? Proverbs chapter 7, verse 1. My son, keep my words and lay up my commandments with thee. Keep my commandments and live and my law as the apple of thine eye. How are we supposed to love the Word of God? How are we supposed to keep the Word of God as the apple of our eye? So that same way that, that I would protect my children, the same way that you would protect your children, the same way that God would love and protect and preserve the nation of Israel, that's how we are supposed to keep the Word of God. We're supposed to love the Word of God. We're supposed to feed on the Word of God. We're supposed to protect the Word of God. As the apple of our eye, it's got to be dear to us. Is the Bible dear to you? So there are two challenges from my message today that I, that I hope are getting through. Number one, we need to consider the glory of God. Where is Jesus my glory? Am I ignoring Him through most of my life? Or is, is He the glory of my life? And then is the Bible the apple of my eye the way that Israel is the apple of God's eye? Do we care about the scriptures. Go back to Zechariah chapter 2. Verse 8. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, After the glory hath he sent me unto the nations, which spoiled you. For he that toucheth you toucheth the apple of his eye. For behold, I will shake mine hand upon them, and they shall be a spoil to their servants. And ye shall know that the Lord of hosts hath sent me. The Bible says that God's going to shake His hand on this world. And when He does that, the stars of heaven are going to fall. The, the water's going to be spoiled. These nations are going to fall. And He's going to pull them together. And He's going to judge those nations. He's going to make war with those nations. Zechariah chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. Or chapter 14, verses 2 and 3 talks about that. Then will I fight with them as when I fought in the day of battle. That's what God says about the nations. He gathers them together to make war with them. All of this is going to happen. And when you look around the world, you can see it all beginning to take place. And all of God's prophecies are become obviously true. And so he says it to Israel, I'm going to make an announcement. I'm going to expand Jerusalem. I'm going to come back. I'm going to be a, we're, there's not going to have to be a wall because it, it, I'm going to be a wall of fire around them. And the city is going to be so great, it'll be full of men and cattle, and you're not going to believe how wonderful it is. And I'll be the glory in the middle of it. 
That's what he says. I'm going to do this after I return and after I establish my glory. And then he says, He that toucheth you, they're touching the apple of my eye. And he's going to bring judgment on those nations. And then the application for us is, what do we think about Jesus? Is He our glory? See, one of the great things about the kingdom is that Jesus Christ is the glory of it. If you can go, oh, okay, then you need to go to the Lord and say, Lord, why am I so careless about who you are? And then He keeps Israel as the apple of His eye, but we're supposed to keep His word as the apple of our eye. And I wonder how serious we are about God's Word, personally. Not as a church, but individually. How serious are we about God's Word? You know, we spend money on all kinds of things. I was at this golf outing, and the the guy that was riding in the cart with me had on this really cool FootJoy rain jacket. And I knew, because I had just seen it at the store, that that was $250 for this rain jacket. $250! bucks. You know, a guy will spend 30 or $40 on a box of golf balls. Right? You hunters, your, your, your compound bow, that's like 30 bucks, right? <laughs> you know, your gear, your, your stand, your blind, all, all of these things. Well, those things that we spend money on. And a good Bible is 100 bucks, and people go, Pfft. Isn't that interesting? The value that we place on things. Isn't that interesting? We need to decide how valuable is God's Word. Now, I'm not saying you need to go out and buy an expensive Bible, but, but do you understand the point that I'm making on it? Jesus Christ is coming back. Now, He's going to take us out. Praise God, we're not going to go through that wrath. We've been delivered from the wrath to come, the Bible says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Praise God, we're not going to be in that. But the people around us are. So, if, here, so here's the process. If we begin to make Jesus Christ our glory, then His prerogatives for our life, His priorities for our life, begin to change the way that we behave and think. Is that right? And then when we love His Word, we learn more and more what those priorities are. And one of those priorities is that it is not God's will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And we, so we start, it changes the way that we live. It changes the way that we speak. It changes the way that we prioritize our time. It changes the, way, the information that we bring in. And then the Bible says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. So because we're imbibing so much of the Word of God, that changes the way that we speak and we interact in the world. And because He is our glory, we can't help but talk about Him. And all of a sudden, we're evangelizing the people around us that we never would have if we had stayed distracted by the cares of this world. So I want you to enjoy your hunting. I want you to enjoy, um, Luke, I want you to enjoy your quilting. I want, I want you guys to enjoy whatever it is that God has you do. I, enjoy those things, but make sure He's the glory of it. Right? Make sure He's the middle of it. Make sure that you're keeping God's Word as the apple of your eye. And then take that reality out into the world because people are dying and going to hell. They need to be saved. You have the answer for them. How many of you have the answer for them? Would you raise your hands. You know that you have the answer. Let's tell them. Let's tell them. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word.